you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everybody in between. And we mean that sincerely. We are an inclusive community. We're 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 a we're a uh, well, well. This is good. We're an inclusive paranormal panacea. Oh, does that work? That, does that make that? Does that, no, does that make sense? does doesn't it no that, that, that yeah no that does make sense that does make sense and i know what you mean by panacea but that also makes me think of shampoo for some reason <laughs> so so i'm thinking that we we are using ectoplasm to cleanse our hair yeah. but there's that's no bad thing <laughs> severed head and shoulders <laughs> oh my god did you just make that I up did, yeah <clears throat> oh okay that's amazing. <laughs> yes. Seven head and shoulders. I'm with you. Good. Amazing. Good. Well, uh, as you know, for the last few weeks, uh, Ben has been ploughing away doing episodes. So um, I've put together this week. So he's, he's, I wouldn't say you've had a week off, but it means that I've been able to dig into some stories. And Ben, what I thought, uh, we often talk about jots. Just one of those things. So... We do. Yeah, little, small, strange, weird coincidences. Well, this week, I wanted to maybe take it up a level. Okay. So these are stories of coincidences that I guess you might describe as jots on steroids. Okay. So Or weird twists of fate. So I'm going to talk about a number of stories from, from different sources, but many of them featured in an amazing book uh, I read by a professor of mathematics called Joseph Mazur. His book is called Fluke, The Math and Myth of Coincidence. That's easy for you to say. It really is. Um, and there are some amazing stories in the book. So I, I just, we always say where you can get the books. We'll put a link um, on our Facebook page in the photo album. Uh, but I picked it up. I picked a Kindle version for like five pounds on Amazon, I think paperbacks are about nine quid. Well worth a read. Anyway, I'm going to start with a story that Professor Mazur describes as the most amazing coincidence story he's ever come across. And it involves a French poet, an Englishman with a strange name and a plum pudding. That sounds like the best setup to a joke I've ever heard. <laughs> I know, and it's not. Um... Uh, but I've done that thing. We do it. We do this to ourselves, Ben, don't we? I've got one name in this story, which I'm going to have to keep repeated, <laughs> repeating, which is going to be really difficult, but I will do my best. And it's not the first one I use. So to give you a bit of background, Emile Deschamps is a celebrated 19th century poet. And as a young boy, he was at a boarding school in Orléans in France where he met an Englishman, here it comes, who had a very strange name, and this Englishman was called M.D. Fortgibu. Fortgibu. So I'll spell it, I'll spell it out. M dot space D-E yeah. Yeah. space capital F-O-R-T-G-I-B-U. Yeah, I don't know how to say that. So I, I probably will say that a few different ways, but I'll for, keep going. Fortigbu. For, Fort Gibbu. Fortigbu. Yeah. 
God, he's going to have a real trouble when he contacts a call centre. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, could you say that again, sir? Um, okay, so MD4TBU basically met this French poet, Emily Deschamps, at his boarding school in Orléans in France. And he suggested to Deschamps that he try an English dessert, which was pretty much unknown at the time in France. And that is the dessert of plum pudding. Okay. I mean, for hilarity, he should have said spotted dick, but yes. Yeah, yeah. But plum pudding it is. Plum pudding, yeah. So Deschamps tried it at his boarding school, liked it, but didn't really think much about it after that. Until about 10 years later, when Deschamps was in Paris, and he passed a restaurant that advertised plum pudding on their menu. Remembering his school days and thinking, oh yeah, I really, I really remember liking that, he went into the establishment and ordered a slice of plum pudding. Only to be told by the woman behind the counter that another gentleman had just ordered the whole pudding and none was left. (laughs) (laughs) So greedy. So greedy, but there you go. So feeling sorry for Deschamps, the waitress called over to the man who just bought the pudding to see if he would share a slice with the French poet. (laughs) Of course she did. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly how it works in restaurants. Yeah. An Englishman then replied, of course, it would give me great pleasure. You guessed it, that Englishman was none other than M.D. Fort Gibbue. What? Ten years later, that was. It gets better. It gets better. Many years after that incident, Deschamps was invited to a dinner party and he noticed the menu included plum pudding. He joked to his friends that he expected that MD40 Gibbue would be there. When Deschamps arrived at the party, MD40 Gibbue was not there and he wasn't one of the 10 guests that were there. So when it came to time for dessert and the plum pudding came out, Deschamps recanted the story to his fellow dining guests of encountering this weird Englishman kind of 10 years after he first met him and all the stories around the plum pudding. As he finished the tale, uh, the doorbell rang and an old man walked in. The man was introduced. His name, N.D. Fortib Gibbue. Oh, for goodness sake. That's ridiculous. Deschamps says of the incident, when I saw the Englishman walk in, I quote, my hair stood up on my head. The poet thought he'd been pranked or whatever the 19th century equivalent of that is, Mm -hmm. but he hadn't been. Now, there is a further really bizarre twist to this story. M.D. Fort Gibbue was not supposed to be at the dinner party. He'd been invited to dinner at someone else's house but got the address wrong and accidentally turned up at the other address in time for the plum pudding with Dishon. That... Yeah. Dishon, Dishon later said... Three times in my life have I eaten plum pudding and three times I've seen M.D. Fort Gibbue. I don't really know what to make of that, but that is insane. And it's, it's the same guy, right? Same guy. And it's the only time that... It's those three occasions, one when he was at boarding school, one yeah. ten years later, and one where he was like 20 years after that, 
It's the only three times he's had plum pudding, and every time it's involved the weird guy with the English guy with the weird name. Same guy. Yeah. I I mean, either that guy is like just a massive truffler for plum pudding and he just you know seeks it out. What you or, think he, he's got a nose for it? Well well he's just like everywhere he goes, he's like he wakes up in the morning and he's like, right, plum pudding today. 10 a.m. here, 10.30 here, 11 here. He, he's basically living his life around plum pudding. Living his life through plum pudding. Well, there's, there's, there's worse ways to go. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as an aside, I don't think I've ever had plum pudding because yeah, Christmas yeah. cake, uh, no, sorry, Christmas pudding is often put forward as being plum pudding, but it really isn't. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but that... That is an extraordinary set of circumstances. And, and they I, weren't friends. They weren't. The only times they'd met were on those three occasions. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I think that's amazing. I mean, that's, that's like a super jot. Yeah, super jot. Well, let's move on from poets to actors. The next story involves someone we've mentioned on the podcast before briefly one of our all-time faves, or mine at least, film legend Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. So, Hopkins was set to play the role of Kostya in the 1970s film adaptation of the book The Girl from Petrovka. So what he thought he'd do is, he, hadn't, he kind of read the script, but he hadn't read the whole book. So he went out into London one day. He searched multiple bookstores in London for a copy of the original book in order to help his preparations for the role, but he couldn't find a copy anywhere. Then, on his way home, he was sitting in a London underground station waiting for the next train, and he noticed someone had accidentally left a book on the seat next to him. It was a copy of the very book he'd been looking for <laughs> oh my god okay not not only that it was signed by the writer george pfeiffer who oh, hopkins for... would later meet on the set of the film okay that's ridiculous that is ridiculous yeah i'll, I'll weirdly i'll come on to the odds of that in a minute but um Now, this story is often said to be an internet rumour rather than a true story. However, Joseph Mazur, the author of the book I'm talking about, about um, coincidences, he followed up this story for his book. He writes, George Pfeffler, who's the author of the book, told me the true story himself. He had used a copy of the American edition of The Girl from Petrovka, to highlight words that required British translation for the UK publication of the book. So I think it's taking out American spellings and putting in English spellings. So he'd gone through the book to highlight it. Mm. He submitted his translation to the British publisher uh, and then checked them out on the copy plates. So then he was left with the book that he'd highlighted. One day he met a friend in Hyde Park Square and gave the friend his marked up and signed American edition of the book. In a daze of the moment, the friend put the book on top of his car and late for an afternoon meeting, it says, with a girl, he speedily drove off and obviously the book 
flew off the roof. Mm-hmm. Never seen again. On seeing the writer, uh, on see, seeing the writer, Pfeffer on the set, Hopkins told him that he had found the book at an underground station, though Hopkins has never confirmed the story himself in the press. But the author of the book says Hopkins came up to him on the set and told him the story. And he had lost the book around the same time. Yeah. That's... Yeah. The, the, I, I don't really, really know what to say. That's extraordinary. I mean, yeah, that's the only word for it. Yeah. I, it's like the universe is producing this thing. Yeah. All right, well, let's come on to another book-related one. Now, this book-related twist of fate comes from Paris in 1929, and it involves American writer Anne Parrish and her husband, who had travelled from America to the French capital on holiday. After some sightseeing, they stopped for lunch at a restaurant near Notre Dame. Anne left her husband drinking his wine and decided to browse the bookstalls along the River Seine. Anne found a copy of one of her favourite books, Helen Wood's Jack Frost and Other Stories. She haggled with the bookstall holder, agreed a price of one franc and purchased the book. Sounds like a good deal, right? Even back Mm. then, that sounds quite good. Anne returned to the restaurant where her husband was still enjoying his wine and excitedly showed him the book that she'd found. After a few minutes of leafing through the pages, he handed the book back to her with one of the flyleaf pages open. So I think that's one of the blank ones at the front, right? Mm. On the back. Yep. There, pencilled in childlike handwriting, were the words, Anne Parrish, 209 North Weber Street, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Yes, Anne Parrish had bought the exact book she had owned as a child. The book had travelled 5,000 miles, or about 8,000 kilometres, to Paris and had been unwittingly repurchased by its original owner over 20 years later. Mm. Well, that's more... Well, is it more than a jot? Yeah, it's more than a jot. Oh, I'm going to come on. Because this... Well, I think we'll talk about this more as we go along. The maths professor, Joseph Mazur, who's written a lot of the stories that I'm doing today, mm. or, or recounted them, he ran some numbers to try and work out the probability in the Anne Parrish story. So we're going to get some bendy science bit here, and it might surprise you. To quote him, he says, First, first, let's guess the likelihood that Anne would be travelling to Paris in the summer of 1929. He said, I would give that likelihood a conservative number close to 0.1. I'll come on to these numbers in a minute. He says, Anne was married to an industrialist with money. Paris was the number one European holiday destination of wealthy Americans in 1929. Then he goes on, what is the likelihood that she would have visited the bookstalls while in Paris? He says, I would say the likelihood of that is 0.3, quite high. She's a writer, she's got interest in books. He then goes on to point out that Anne's mother had a connection to Paris as well and that there would only have been a small number of places in Paris 
that would have sold English language books. So you're narrowing it down, right? Which might mm-hmm. explain why the book ended up there and why she found it there. So he gives this a probability of 0.01. <laughs> okay. So I'll give you the full equation. You ready? Okay. The calculation is 0.1 times 0.3 times 0.01. Hang on. 0.1 times 0.3 times 0.01. Okay. I mean, I haven't got my calculator open, but I did do... A-level maths, so... I mean, that's a very small number. Yeah, so the number is 0.0003. Okay. 0.003. Oh, 0.003. Okay, yep. So to use a simpler term, the odds of Anne finding and buying that very same book are somewhere between, and this surprised me, 3,331 to 1, mm-hmm. or somewhere between that and 10,000 to 1. About the same of being dealt a poker hand of a four of a kind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, Which yeah. I, I, and I kind of went, given that story, those odds seem actually quite low. Yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think they're quite low. Um, but it does make sense. She makes sense she would have travelled to Paris. She wasn't looking... I'll come on to the Anthony Hopkins one in a minute because his odds are slightly different because he was looking for a specific book. She wasn't looking for the book. She just came across the book. It just happened to be the one she'd owned. But if her mother's got connections with Paris, when they cleared out the house, it could have ended up there... And the woman who's the writer was likely to go looking for books. It was a book that she loved. She picked it up. What are the char- how many how many English language books of that book would have been in France, let alone Paris? Hmm. So so you can see why the odds. You kind of think, wow, the odds must be absolutely astronomical. But I mean, it's just a theory that uh, the uh, the professors putting out there and there are so many variables it's hard to know but it did make me rethink the idea of a jot slightly those odds uh yeah no i i agree i agree because those numbers they don't sound like out of the realm of possibility but then like that's the initial sort of thought and then you start actually thinking well you know how how it relates together and you go yeah they that is very that is hard to come to terms with but it's again it sort of feels like well it's not like one in seven billion so it's kind yeah. of it's it's <clears throat> it is more likely but still yeah still it's a it's it is an intriguing thing yeah that's well, what i'll say it's an intriguing thing well Missouri then goes on to calculate the anthony hopkins case Right, uh, and he does say there are more variables. Um, one, he was looking for a specific book, so there was less flexibility. It wasn't like he spotted a book, picked it up, and it belonged to him. Um, 
And the other main thing that affects the odds are he didn't find the book in a bookstore. Oh. So if he'd have been looking in a bookstore and found that book, the odds would have been pretty low. He's looking for a specific book. He goes to a bookstore, he finds a specific book. Mm. I'll come on to the, the weird bit of this. So he the the professor calculates the odds of Hopkins finding it at an underground station. Uh, the odds are 71,427 to 1, the same <laughs> as being dealt a straight flush in poker. Okay, yeah. However, the odds of finding a copy of the book previously owned and signed by the original author are, to quote Mazur, incomprehensible. Hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, no. I get that. I get that. And I suppose being in the moment of of what happened makes it even more incomprehensible. But yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah, okay. That's amazing. Yeah, I I mean that I mean that's the last story for that book I'm gonna feature. I've got a couple of other stories to do i really suggest having a full read of it because there's so much in there about probability and you know not thinking about narrowing it down you know because when i went the 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 book in paris you know i'd go god the odds of that must be a million to one mm. but actually you know his calculations could be wrong who knows but actually when he narrows down those factors you kind of go okay there are there are things in it that make sense and bring the odds down. I would have if you'd have said to me the odds of that were could be as low as three thousand three hundred and thirty one to one, I'd have thought you'd be crazy. Yeah, you would. I suppose that the the thing about these things is, uh, and I think this is what skeptics would say because I've certainly heard this argument before is. Um, the the odds of winning the lottery are a lot lower than what you've just said, and you never ever hear a report about oh well well I didn't win the lottery this evening, but you always hear about the people that did, and of of course that's that's not a very scientific yeah. thing to say, but um, I think the difference between those things is is like the lottery it's it's kind of boolean isn't it it's like you either win or you don't but there's no it's not like you win and then you go oh and then imagine my surprise that my dad was the person who bought the check round there's an there's another element to it so yeah. when you're talking about these stories i don't think you're, if if you talk about well the odds of winning the lottery, I don't think it is comparing apples with apples. I think it's comparing apples with completely something different because yeah. what you're saying is you've got yeah. it, there's a low probability, and then the thing that happens is very personal. So in in the world of the lottery, it's like it is like winning the lottery, and then suddenly your girlfriend says. Well, it was me that designed that scratch card. You know, it's it's that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think especially, I mean, in a way, out of the, the story so far, 
the the French uh, the French writer finding her own book is that's almost mm. what I would call a normal job, right? Yeah, a normal yep. just one of those things. The Hopkins one is takes it up a level because it was signed and marked up by the person he would then be working with on the movie itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I, I completely agree. And the and pudding one just blows your mind. It does. And and I think when you're working out those odds, I what I would like to do is just question how one comes to those numbers because if it's like, you know, I think, it, I, I would imagine it's very difficult to quantify because there is, I think there's so many layers. It's like, well, the, the, the odds of finding this book, surely, if it is, surely the odds have to encompass, well, all of the square metres in the UK and then all of the books published... And then you have to go into, and then how many of them were signed? So yeah. surely the, like, I'm not going to argue with mathematicians because that isn't how my brain works. But surely if you were to say out of a 10,000 print run, a thousand were signed, 500 are in circulation, and then you you work out the odds of those 500 being distributed across all of the areas of the UK. And, and I don't think you have to say, well, it's, you know, it's just, it's trains, it's restaurants. They could be thrown out of a car window. They could be taken into a woods and left there. I, I feel like those, those odds and probabilities, I don't, I don't buy you think they seem? Is it high or low? High, no high. low. I always get this wrong way round. No, uh, me too. No, I think They're, they seem low. I think the odds seem. They should l- be wider than that. They yeah, should, yeah, should exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if if he only signed five hundred books, and I don't know how many square miles the UK is. Let's say it's a million square miles. I'm not. You know, I don't know, but let's say there's five hundred books, and. It's five hundred. It's five million square miles, but you can't find a book in a square mile. So you have to then times that by the amount of feet. And so what you're looking at is what is the odds of finding a book that was that had five hundred print that was signed. Five hundred of them were signed in a foot of space in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, not only signed, but owned by the original author. Okay, it but It was owned. his copy. Right, right. But then you also have to add in, like, to, to make, surely to make these, uh, this make sense, you have to say, you have to make an assumption about how many are just stuck on someone's bookshelves, how many have been destroyed by a dog biting them, or they were dropped in a shower, you know, that's yeah. yeah, it's equally likely. So you kind of have to make an assumption after an assumption after assumption. So you go, well, 500 were signed, 400 
still exist because I've made an assumption that animals destroyed some, mold destroyed some, and then you go, well, I'm going to also make an assumption that half of those are stuck in bookshelves, so there's 250 of them, and then you start saying, well, out of those 250, how many of those owners uh, really look after them? Then you've got another assumption, so let's say it's 100. So then you've got 150, and I'm obviously making this up as I go along, you've got 150 signed books to distribute randomly across 5 million square miles, and you are the person who is involved in that book to find that. The odds seem, seem much less likely (laughs) i can't work out whether they're higher or well the bit i can't work out about the story as well is if the author was basically marking it up for the british edition of it Mm. you know it could explain why hopkins couldn't find the book so the odds would change then wouldn't they because if that's the case there wasn't a copy in the whole of the uk but hopkins managed to find one randomly on a seat next to him of a book that wasn't even available in the UK at that time, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. But that would add that would hold had a whole new level, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well that would that would mean the odds were were far more difficult to achieve than that. Yeah. yeah. I, I I with all of these things, I think you need to know what the inputs are. Like I, I don't know how to calculate the outputs. I like, yeah. As, as I, I mean, say, in fairness to the professor, he does go into a lot of detail of that in the book, but uh, you know, wouldn't quite work if we if I was going into it in mass detail on the podcast. But it's definitely worth a read, and you know, pick apart his um, his thinking around it. But it, but even if he's I mean, he'd have to be incredibly wildly out for me to not go, it's still lower than I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, um, like, yeah, no, we're not going to do a switchover podcast where we go into the maths because I won't be able to keep up. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, probability always blows my mind because the probability is always very different to what i imagine it to be yeah yeah yeah. and uh you always get that thing of um like uh, you uh, today just randomly i bumped into three sequential people that i needed to talk to on social media and i was just like putting it off because uh, I'm just lazy. And then I walked to go and buy, the, oh, this is my middle class life, I walked to go and buy some coffee beans and I bumped into all three of them and I was able to do the business there. And I came back and my partner said, oh, well, I was very lucky. I was like, yeah, it was very lucky. But I think the probability when you're living in what is a relatively small community yeah. and you all have similar lifestyles, it's probably not that. It's probably... I don't know what the problem is. It's like one in 50. It's way less than winning the lottery. And But if you were to relay that, if you were really boring and relayed that in five years to somebody that didn't live anywhere near you, 
they would probably go, gosh, well, that's, yeah, yeah. you know, that seems almost paranormal. You go, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's not. We live on the same street. It's all, it's all good. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think you have to read some of that in there. But from the way those stories are told, uh, it, <laughs> it, personally, it seems like they should be, much, those that yeah those circumstances should be much more difficult to accomplish than they were but like i say like all the skeptics say you only hear about the ones that yeah. did come together there'll yeah. be millions of others where it all fell apart and somebody ended up homeless <laughs> i was thinking we can't really go into the mess because we don't even know whether to say is it higher odds or lower odds? If we can't get past that one, we're hardly going to get the equation oh, right, are boy. we? <laughs> Sometimes you think you know what you're doing, and then <laughs> you just like look honestly. When you, if if you are a teacher and you're teaching maths, just please teach your kids some of this stuff because you can pass a GCSE. I got an A in maths but I still can't quite work out whether that's higher or lower. Maybe you could just do an <laughs> FAQ once a month so people yeah, could ask you. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to move on to some different types of stories. Um, and I'm going to ask you a question, Ben. Okay. Who was the most important person of the 20th century? <clears throat> Oh boy, that's a really good question. Uh, uh, right, so there's no qualification. You're not saying politics or science or anything like that. It's just no, okay. just that pure question, and okay. you'll see why I've done it that way in a minute. Okay, okay. Um, and when I say important, it doesn't mean good or bad. It just means yeah, yeah, instrumental. You know yeah, I'm not saying he was the greatest person. It's just who was the most important. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. I, this feels like QI. And <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah, it I, does. I, I guarantee I'm, you're going to get a beep. Whichever I way know I'm going to get the beep. Um, uh, I know I'm going to get this wrong. I'm just going to throw into the pot. Louis Pasteur and Ronald Reagan. Okay. I was thinking Einstein and whatever. Well, according to historian and podcaster Dan Carlin, the most important person of the 20th century is Gavrilo Princip. Well, he was number three. (laughs) Now, Princip was a Bosnian Serb and a member of the terrorist group uh, that were incensed by the way the Austro-Hungarian Empire was running their country. When Princip discovered that heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, would be visiting Sarajevo, he decided to take him out. See what I did there? Yeah, he's nodding, he's got it. Um... So Princip decided to assassinate Franz Ferdinand. And on June 28th, 1914, Princip and others from his group gathered and waited for the royal motorcade to pass. Princip and his gang threw grenades at the motorcade as it went past, 
but failed to kill Franz Ferdinand. Dejected, Princip, Princip believed he had lost his chance until there was a bizarre twist of fate. In the panic that ensued, Franz Ferdinand's driver took a wrong turn and ended up on the same street where Princip happened to be standing. Before the car could reverse, Princip shot and killed Ferdinand and his wife. This bizarre twist of fate launched World War I, which led to World War II, sparked the Russian Revolution, the birth of the USSR and the Cold War, the atomic arms race, and in World War I it destroyed the Ottoman Empire and changed the Middle East forever, all because a driver took a wrong turn and run into an unsuccessful assassin who tried to kill the person he was driving earlier. Well, I'm quite surprised that Tom Tom aren't making a bigger deal of this because <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. this would seem like a marketing strategy that they yeah. could make hay out of. But, gosh, I never thought of that. So, so he was a nobody then. Yeah, I mean, he was just a kind of, I don't know how you say it, minor league terrorist, I guess, back in the day or... You know, I guess depending on your your view at the time living there, either kind of minor freedom fighter or terrorist, depending on your point of view. But he, uh, he wasn't particularly famous or known. But you know, he started World War One by killing Franz Ferdinand. But you know, it was the fact that it was actually a kind of weird job that made it happen because he thought his chance had gone. He was basically on his way home, thinking, "Damn, I missed my chance." Then suddenly the car of the person he was trying to kill ends up driving down this dead-end street where he was. Yeah. And and then, of course, uh, he, he inadvertently leads to the naming of uh, a rock band. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that they uh, perpetuate some middle-of-the-road music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you Gosh. go. So yeah, so maybe he was responsible for the for most important person of the twenty first century as well. <laughs> yeah, I I mean no offense, and 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 I'm now like, <laughs> if you say no offense to the band Franz Ferdinand, it's too late, Ben. <laughs> well, no, I was I was going to say no offense to I the quite fans. Like Take me out. It's a good song. Really? Yeah, I like that kind of started of one song, ended as another. I don't really like much of their other material, but I like that song. Uh, uh, my favourite thing about Franz Ferdinand is the lack of inspiration for the people that make their <laughs> Wikipedia page. There's like about, I would say, five images on their Wikipedia page and uh, of, of live gigs, and they are all taken from really low-rent cameras... And the uh, the subtitle that goes with each one is the band performing in two thousand and four, Franz Ferdinand performing live in Dundee, Scotland, two thousand and six. Is is literally like well, if we had to go back through the papers and work out <laughs> who Franz Ferdinand were, yes, this really really terrible image of a man in a blue shirt holding up a guitar could be attributed to Franz Ferdinand performing in 2004 but the whole thing but yes anyway well that that sounds like almost 
<laughs> police evidence rather than than a fan page doesn't <laughs> it doesn't it yes absolutely and 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 i think the the funny thing is just the low rent of the picture it's 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 like if you remember those um uh, uh 110 cameras when you were about 10 which kind of you clipped them open and they were like a little bar and you had those cam- the films that you put in and then you had a single click that's what all those pictures look like they were taken by. Right, right. Um, but okay, yeah, no, so I get why he was the most instrumental man. But I'm also going to say, and and I've done no research on this because we came into this with me cold on this, but I believe that the car that Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in there's something weird about it. I think it's its registration plate. Doesn't his registration plate uh, Ooh, al- allude to the year that World War One started or finished? I think it does. Hold on. I'm just doing a quick Google. Licence plate. Yeah, okay. Uh, the number plate of the car carrying Franz Ferdinand when he was shot... There's a strange coincidence to the end of the Great War. Uh, on the day he was murdered, bore a number plate which became eerily significant four years on. The prince was shot in his car in Sarajevo on the 28th of June 1914, which triggered the First World War, as we said. Yeah. Uh, he, survived, he initially survived the shot assassination. Uh, see, this is interesting. This says something different to the story I got, said he was shot when he went to visit some of the men who were injured in hospital. Oh, maybe he was on the way there, I guess. Uh, The number plate is uh, A, I guess that's 1111 or LLLL 118, which uh, some have read as the day the eventual armistice was signed. Ah... So ah. 11, 11, 18, the armistice was signed on 11th of November, 1918. Right, okay, yes, that was what I was remembering. Yeah, which is interesting, but it, you know, again, it's... you. Yeah, one is reading it wasn't a lot. Like, the, it. like if you'd have been the date the war broke out or ended, but the armistice signed, yeah, it's a little loose, I guess. Um, Going to end this episode with it's got a mixture of everything this story you may know it um it's got a bit of paranormal it's got a bit of conspiracy it and it has got some kind of jotty twists of fate in it uh it's the story uh that's kind of become known as the sodder children i don't know if you've heard of oh god i love this story yes yes please yes now, I've tried to be sensitive in terms of what I've included and the descriptions in the story, because as we sometimes say on the podcast, if you're listening with kids in the car, you know, it's a distressing topic, some of it. Um, so it is the last story that we're featuring. So if you've got anyone in the car, maybe save the end of this podcast for later. Um, so this is uh a tragic tale of a devastating fire that befell one family on Christmas Day in 1945. A fire engulfed the home of George and Jenny Sodder in Fayetteville in West Virginia. 
The fire took hold at 1am on Christmas Day and raged out of control quickly. George and Jenny Sodder needed to save their nine children who were in the house at the time. After saving four of his children, George tried to enter the house to rescue the remaining five kids using his ladder, but his ladder had mysteriously disappeared. George then had the idea to use his truck to stand on in order to reach the windows, but his truck mysteriously would not start. When firemen finally entered the house, no evidence of the children's remains were found. The firemen initially putting this down to the intensity of the fire destroying all evidence. However, a local crematorium worker pointed out that it would take a fire of 2,000 degrees intensity, burning for two hours to destroy all evidence of the remains, and the sodden family home burnt down in just 45 minutes. So it appeared the sodden children, Betty, aged five, Jenny, aged eight, Louis, aged nine, Martha, 12, and Maurice, 15, had vanished. After the event, evidence of sightings began to be reported. One witness said he had seen the children watching the blaze from outside the house as he passed in his truck. Another claimed to have seen the children with a man and woman at a truck stop 50 miles away. So you can imagine many theories started to circulate. There were rumours about arson and whether the father, George, was kind of in debt or in league with the mafia. There was all mafia, there was all kinds of stuff. Or there was a big theory that the children had been kidnapped and the fire was set to cover the tracks. Um, And after the event, George and Jenny Sodder then started to recall some strange encounters that they'd had in the months before the tragic fire. In one, a stranger had visited the house a month or so before the tragedy looking for work. He pointed at a fuse box at the front of the house and said, I quote, This is going to cause a fire someday. It was very odd to George Sodder because the fuse box was in perfect condition. So he just put that down to it, some guy looking for work, just kind of making stuff up, right? On another occasion, a man selling door-to-door life insurance became angry when George had said he wasn't interested. The man shouted at George, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Another strange event happened half an hour before the fire started. Jenny Sodder was woken by a phone call. When she answered, all she heard heard was a woman's laughing and glasses being clinked. Jenny hung up the phone and sadly went straight back to sleep. So that was half an hour before the fire started. Now, this is the bizarre, slightly bizarre twist of fate. Hmm. The insurance salesman who had threatened George, or at least shouted at him about the house burning down and the children dying, ended up as a juror on the coroner's inquiry and was one of the people who helped find the fire marked as an accident. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Now... Now, when I've been digging into this story, the family, the Sodder family, hired a private investigator, and I have a feeling that this only came out after the coroner's inquiry and whatever. It's an inquiry rather than a trial, right? It's an inquiry, I think. After the inquiry 
had finished because the private investigator was looking into all of these reports, you know, people hanging by the house. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, he came across the fact that this insurance salesman who'd been mouthing off at George and kind of predicted the house burning down and the children dying actually ended up as a juror on the coroner's inquiry. Which is quite bizarre. That's so bizarre. That is so bizarre. Um, yeah, that's more than a jot, isn't it? Well, there's more weirdness. Years later, bones were found on the property, but these were deemed not to be linked to the children. So they weren't the children's bones, but bones were found on the property, which is a weird mystery. 20 years after the fire, George and Jenny received a bizarre and spooky letter. It contained a photo of a man in his 20s, which bore a resemblance to their son Louis, who had apparently died in the fire. There was also a cryptic note on the back of the photo with the words, I'm going to quote this because it is a weird thing. The writing said, Louis Sodder, dot, I love brother Frankie, dot, I-L-I-L, space, capital B, boys, dot, A90132, or 35. Well, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, uh, there are many Reddit threads and other forums that have tried to decode the meaning of that message. A bit like the number plate we were just talking about. There's kind of dates and things thrown out and, you know, what the ILIL, there was kind of rumour that, you know, that the children had been maybe taken to Italy and kidnapped so maybe ILIL was connected with that the code numbers now this was interesting I did a little googling myself you know you just put the number in the only reference I can find for A90132 is that is a hexadecimal colour code for a medium dark shade of pink though it is weird that those codes are often referred to as hex codes like a Pantone Pantone yeah, but so it's, it's a hex code for a for a, a dark color pink that was but, used in paint at the time. So, but did those hex codes were they in use when they went missing? Yeah, yeah I don't know because hex codes are normally to do with screens, aren't they? More that, than yeah, and this and they went missing in 1945, right? Yeah, yeah. <sighs> That's what weird. a weird message to get. And, you know, I've, I've read bits where the parents basically say it looks like their son. Now, you know, their son, Louis, at the time, I think, what did I say? He was nine. This is a 20-year-old. It's hard to predict what your son would look like, you know, at 20 if you last saw them at nine. But they have claimed that the eyebrow shape, shape of the face, certain features are that of their son. Um, and to have this written on the back, Louis Sodder dot I love brother Frankie dot I-L-I-L boys A90132 or 35. It's just a bizarre thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bizarre, bizarre thing 
you know, you can you kind of go, could that be a prank? But it's kind of a weird prank, especially if it's so cryptic, you can't work it out. Yeah. There, there were also rumours that those numbers may be uh, a location in Italy and that somehow that Louis Soddard managed to send a postcard out from the people who'd been holding him and was trying to give coordinates. But, you know, it's a rabbit hole, the, that, the uh, message. But it's worth having a look at some of the Reddit threads because there are some interesting theories there. Yeah. So what I know about this case is that I think, like, the, the most accepted outcome is that the kids died in house fire yeah but there are a number well because there was no there's no conclusive evidence of that it turns into a missing persons case and there were follow-ups to this for quite some time and it's still plausible so they've been missing for uh like 77 years yeah and so some of the youngest ones, well, even the oldest ones could still be alive. All of those kids could still be alive. Yeah. And yet we haven't contacted them uh, and they haven't, and, and it's possible they don't even know that they're being sought out. But yeah. Like, I mean, report, I mean, there's everything in there, isn't there? There's, while the fire's raging, reports of them standing, watching the flames, that seems quite ghostly paranormal activity you know you've then got them being spotted 50 miles away at a service station that well that kind of ties into the kidnap theory you know yeah I, I, I thought I thought what was interesting when they said about the fire and lack of evidence that it said uh it was a coroner's assistant who'd told them about uh sorry a crematorium worker pointed out Fire takes 2,000 degrees intensity for two hours. I'm not, you know, crematorium worker. It depends on his level of knowledge. But would that, that wouldn't make him necessarily an expert on fire. Do you know what I mean? An intensity. And we don't know how intense the fire was. Uh, and, and, and that's based on how intense it would have to be to, to destroy bones. Yeah, right? basically. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this... this crematorium worker said it would have to be that hot for two hours but the house burnt down in 45 minutes yeah yeah no that that is extraordinary uh, but you know what that i mean but you could oh, sorry the other thing i was going to say you can say can see how other conspiracy theories got hold when the insurance salesman who'd kind of threatened them with burning down the house you know, inadvertently, then ends up as, then ends up on the the uh, the jury, as it were, for the uh, the inquest. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. Um, but you you know, all of this reminds me of cases where, um, you there is reported communication from beyond the grave like uh phone calls text messages emails uh even messages left around houses it 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 sort of goes beyond jot into 
you know, is is there some other level of communication Paranormal, going on? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But but also, I would say while we were talking about this, because I wanted to refresh my my memory, I went on to uh, the this case on Wikipedia, and while we've been talking, I clicked on to a link which said list of people who disappeared mysteriously. And I think you will love this because the very first one on the list, <laughs> circa 700 BC. I don't think we're going to find him <laughs> right now. <laughs> oh, I'd love, I'd love to see that that picture up. Have you seen this man? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's been missing for about two thousand eight hundred years. Yeah, uh, sandals wearing sandals. Uh, Lassie wearing sandals. Well, it is apparently Romulus, Romulus, the founder and first king of Rome. But but then, but then it goes on, and this is why you should never take Wikipedia (laughs) too seriously. Is that in brackets it says Romulus is a legendary character and not all information about him is necessarily <laughs> historical. Okay, but he's on your list of people who went missing. Went Age missing. at least sixty, missing <laughs> from Rome. Yeah, well, he obviously built it. And um <laughs> it goes on to say, while Romulus was reviewing his troops, I love that. Yeah, four stars for him. Five stars, excellent. Uh, in the uh, Campus Martius near the where where the Pantheon is now, and if you go to Wikipedia, I'm just reading this out loud. A sudden storm with lightning and thunderclaps arose. A thick black cloud hid him from view, and no one saw him again. Some nearby observers said that he had been swept away by the tempest. Livy and Paul. Pultark say Romulus's generals may have used the opportunity to assassinate him. So, yeah. Well, someone told him, we're looking for him, and he's he's been assassinated, and we're wasting our time. Well, I I mean, I think we should all go out there and look for Romulus. <laughs> yeah. Romulus, uh, last seen wearing a short leather skirt, <laughs> <laughs> sexy. carrying a sword, and... Yeah. Um, uh, and and building uh Rome. Yeah. Uh yeah. just well, just just a short uh, sort of seven hundred BC, so uh, uh, keep getting with Master Yeah, it's it's um oh so they, oh it's no it's two thousand nine hundred years ago. Oh yeah, sorry. I keep getting that wrong. Yeah. we're back to our maths. But I have to say I'm kinda of with you. I think that the note um on the the sodder children case is you're right in the way it's worded it's it's got that kind of slightly doesn't make sense kind of mystical thing that we have seen in that kind of you know ghostly writing that does appear sometimes that you you hear about there is something about it but it's probably one of those mysteries that will never get solved i guess that case yeah I think that's probably true. Yeah. You get something where there's like a portent of something terrible that's going to happen and then that terrible thing happens. But again, it's like 
there's the skeptical part of me and i totally buy into this and i'm i'm not because i think you, you you know we wouldn't be doing anyone a service if we said oh no there's 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 it's not to do with coincidence or anything like that but you you get these things where yes there's probably thousands of unreported ones where somebody says you know oh if you get on that plane it'll crash but you get on that plane and it doesn't crash yeah. you know and nobody yeah, tells are, anybody a there's a lot of those and so you only need one for it to be uh yeah. reported on but then there are those where you you sort of go oh well that is it's too close to the truth yeah uh, or too bizarre happened. like the pudding one yeah or it's not like you wouldn't you wouldn't make that story up in that sense because it's just it doesn't really mean anything it's just a bizarre set of coincidences repeating over you know 10 20 years period three times you know with lots of twists and turns it's like i get why you're right that these stories come out about i was supposed to be on that plane and i survived but you wouldn't think oh no i'm gonna there must be other pudding based stories out there we're missing <laughs> <laughs> yeah all de- death can be predicated by puddings to be fair yeah. There is something in that because uh, my favourite pudding is tiramisu and uh, I think my doctor would be quite upset. But those stories that you were talking about, one of the things that I kept going back to and it's, it's something that I think about quite a lot because I think it is more than a coincidence is do you remember when we spoke about um, James Dean and Alec Guinness talking yeah. about his yeah. meeting? Yeah, yeah. And that, bastard. that's right. And uh, it's it's not even a conspiracy thing. It's something that Alec Guinness talks about on the BBC in 1977. It's a, it's a real thing. And that makes me think, yeah, there's more to this. Yeah, yeah anyone who's not heard that story, basically Alec Guinness was having lunch, I think, with James Dean, who just bought his new Porsche... And Alec Guinness said to him, well, if you go out in that car, you'll be dead within a week. And That's he was. right. And he yeah. was. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He, uh, 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 and it, it's even more prophetic because Alec Guinness, he was looking for a table in a restaurant and the one that he went to didn't have any tables. And it was then that James Dean saw him and beckoned oh, so they him weren't over. Even supposed to have. Lunch. They weren't even supposed to be oh, meeting. I didn't know that. No, no. He beckons wow. him over, and has dinner. And then James Dean excitedly says, "Let me show you my new car, which is in the car park." And it's at that moment when he shows him the car that Alec Guinness. It, you'll see it in the interview and it, it, you could like we've covered this before so I don't want to bore listeners but you can find it on YouTube but essentially it's at that moment that he says if you drive that car you'll be dead and and he describes how he was overtaken by some kind of force it was um he said I don't know where this came from and and he says I don't I'm not saying it's paranormal but it sounds paranormal right and yeah, cuz um, it wasn't like he'd gone if you drive that car in a week oh you'll be dead you know what I mean like you might no, say about no. a fast car it was more than that wasn't it yeah 
Yeah, yeah, it is more than that. And and as I re- recall it, I haven't got the details in front of me. I think this was like a Friday or a Saturday, and he died the following Thursday. Right. And um, and and Alec says this is the one and only time in his life where this peculiar thing came over him, and he didn't know where the message came from. He didn't know why he was saying this, but he believed it. Yeah. And yeah. It's extraordinary, and th- and that makes me think of those those other cases where there is like a uh, a prediction or or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, gosh, the so- the sort of children though that is such a sad. Oh, it really is, isn't it? And you just, it, it, you know, I was thinking while I was putting it together and 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 reliving the story in some ways that. You kind of flip from going, in a way, I hope, I wish, I don't hope, I wish that in some ways the parents had had some clarity, even if they died in the fire. Because otherwise Mm. they spent so long, you know, they've not been able to grieve, basically. If that's the case, if they did die in the fire, they've not been able to grieve. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't doubt they're alive now, but... At the time, they probably, you know, they, their whole life they didn't get to grieve. And then, but there is that weirdness of that picture and the message because yeah, 20 yeah. years later, you wouldn't imagine somebody would do that as some kind of sick prank. Do you know what I mean? It's got to be more to it than that. But no. Maybe, maybe someone would, who knows? We're not expecting anyone out there to maybe have as uh, intense uh twist of fate or coincidence or jot as maybe the uh the pudding one but if you've got any small ones we always love to hear them on the podcast because we are obsessed with them as you could probably tell by now i would love another pudding or dessert related yeah if you want dessert related jots that's <laughs> it's niche but that's what we're looking for well it sort of works for us because Dessert, cake, gateau. It's this is our hundredth episode, so but it is. I'd forgotten yeah, about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the best way of uh, giving us a birthday present is giving us a dessert-related jot. Yeah, yeah. We we'll call the segment pastry paranormal. Oh my god! Yes, of course we will. But also. That means if you've listened to us from the start, you've listened to about 150 hours of our absolute <laughs> nonsense. So uh, yeah. bless you for doing so. Yeah, definitely. Please make sure you come back for a 101. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. we, uh, we'll see you next week. On the we'll see you next mechanics. week. Take bye. care. Thank you. Bye. the quantum mechanics.